Marx's critique of the Gotha program contains some of his most explicit comments on the nature of a communist society, the nature of a transition from one mode of production to another, and the challenges of achieving real equality and freedom within a newly created communist society. It also captures some of Marx's ideas about revolutionary organization. For these reasons, it remains a much-read and discussed work today, outliving the particular historical circumstances of its writing. These historical circumstances are as follows. In 1875, two organizations met in Gotha, Germany, with the intent of merging their organizations into one. On one side was the Social Democratic Workers' Party of Germany, also known as the Eisenachers. Marx and Engels were hugely influential on the Eisenachers. On the other side was the General German Workers' Association, who were followers of Ferdinand LaSalle. These two sides drafted a program for a united party, which was then sent to Marx for comments. Marx had long been a critic of LaSalle's ideas, and he immediately saw this program as a theoretical retrogression for the Eisenachers, because it was filled with LaSallean influence. Although the unification of these two organizations was to form an unprecedentedly large workers' party, Marx vehemently opposed the program and the unification. He charged that the program was a theoretical regression, quote, a monstrous attack on the understanding that is spread amongst the mass of our party, end quote, and that there should be no bargaining about principles. On today's episode of Radio Free Humanity, we discuss why Marx thought that building the size of the party was not worth making sacrifices on theoretical principles. And we discuss his notion of the higher and lower phase of communism, the problematic notion of transitional society that is sometimes read into this work, and the question of how Marx envisioned a break with the law of value. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. To hear more episodes, read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please do visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. Please also consider making a donation to the podcast there at that website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. If you're looking for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or some other podcast hosting platform, try typing in the full name of our podcast. That's Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. You can also find our RSS feed at MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. On today's episode, a far-ranging conversation with myself and Andrew about Marx's critique of the Gotha program. But before that... We we're going to take a few minutes, as we do in every episode, to discuss some current events in today's news. For our current events section today, we're going to be talking about two topics. First, we're going to cover uh, the Senate impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump, and then we're going to move on to a discussion of Joe Rogan's endorsement of Bernie Sanders and how the Sandernistas left has responded to that. 
We are recording this current event segment on the 27th of January, several days before the podcast is released, and who knows what sort of uh, changes will happen in this dramatic impeachment trial. Uh, there were just revelations today about a book by John Bolton uh, and how there's speculation that that might cause some senators to change their mind about the need for witnesses. However, even if witnesses testify, it's very likely that this entire uh, outcome is predetermined that the Republican Senate will find a way to cover everything up and to absolve Trump of all responsibility. And it very much feels like the end of the rule of law and democracy in this country. Where do we stand then? What do we do? I mean, effectively, if that happens, the United States is no longer a democratic country, right? And and people are saying, well, you know, the voters will decide. But the, the voters are deciding, first of all, in a rigged election where he's inviting foreign influence very clearly. And the Senate just, just said, yeah, that's cool. You know, it's because it's foreign influence that benefits us, right? You got that? And then the other thing that really troubles me about this idea of letting the voters decide is voters don't decide on the facts concerning these articles of impeachment. They decide, well, gee, I'm a white nationalist and he's good for the white nationalists and I like fetuses and he's good for fetuses and and I like tax cuts and he's giving me tax cuts. Voters don't decide on the issues that the Senate is supposed to be deciding on. And for them to abd abdicate like this is just... It, there's nothing to me that is more clear as a statement that the rule of law does not matter anymore. The facts, justice does not matter. It's all politics and it's all can you get people to like you through whatever political and, and you know monetary favors you throw their, their way. I, I think it's absolutely, absolutely hard. I mean, and the Democrats haven't even made this argument. They made the, the argument, well, you're, you're letting the, the, the accused rig the election and then let the voters decide in a rigged election. I mean, that's all valid. But but even even if we don't have that, what is going to, to compel, you know, 140 million voters to all act as if they're jurors rather than voters? Okay? And if they, act, if they act as voters rather than jurors, then there is not a, the voters are not trying Trump. And then that means, that the, you know, in the, in the, 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 the Senate's basically at best kicking it over. So it means basically if people like you, you can commit any crime, any crime you want. I mean, that is, to, to me, that is like the, the end of the rule of law. And don't talk to me about your laws and don't talk to me about having to uh, do politics according to certain rules. Those rules do not exist. You know that that's my, that's that's my view, and I, I think it's it, it's become palpably clear uh, at this point. But the, the the real question is, okay, what do we do? You know, do do we go down this road of trying to win an election when it's so rigged, um, or do we say, you know, there there are there are still ways of getting Trump out that that don't that just size up the situation we're in and say. The, the rule of law does not does not exist any longer. Fair elections do not exist any longer. This is not any longer a democratic country if, if, if they let this guy off the hook like this. And we, we, we have to fight back by other means. Yeah, and we've talked about this before in the, the podcast about how uh, we can't just rely on the politics of persuasion. We're not going to save the rule of law by writing to senators uh, or calling senators. Uh, we really need to be... Um, uh, organizing a mass base of opposition against Trump outside of the normal uh, two-party electoral system, um, 
uh, they we see it happen in other places. You know, we saw mass movements in Puerto Rico last year taking out uh, elected officials. We need something on that kind of level in this country if we're going to really deal with the Trump problem. But you know, at the moment, I don't see that happening, and, and it's it's kind of depressing. It feels hopeless. Right. I mean, that's the thing, though. Everybody's hopeless. And as long as we're hopeless, we we don't act. And we don't act individually because we're waiting for other people to act. But if we all start to act, then that that can turn things around in a moment. I mean, I think that this is the the, the one thing that really, really upsets me about the Democrats is that they just don't have the perspective and don't have the ability, politics in any manner other than, you know, electorally. The, The Democrats don't do anything to try to encourage uh, a mass opposition that's in any way independent of them, and and as as a result, they're they're in this situation where you know everybody is just like sitting back, hopeless because the Democrats can't pull it off. The, the Republicans, you know, haven't haven't acted this way. You know, the Republicans have the Tea Party, they got their militias, they got their Fox News, they got the whole the whole thing. And the uh, the, the Democrats and the other the so-called left, they they just drop the ball continually. I mean, I understand why the Democrats do it. You know, they're, they're tied to corporate interests and everything like that. But still, it's not like there are no opportunities here. It's just there's a lack of political vision, lack of political will. So we're going to pivot now. Maybe that's an appropriate segue to talking about uh, Joe Rogan's endorsement of Bernie Sanders and the celebration of this endorsement by people on some of the people in the Sanders camp. Um, Joe Rogan is an alt-right podcaster, sometimes referred to as a gateway to the alt-right. Um, he's known to be quite transphobic, to make racist comments, and to frequently platform white nationalists on his podcast. Uh, Bernie Sanders did an interview on Joe Rogan's podcast last year, and just a couple of days ago, Rogan has come out endorsing Sanders, and the Sanders campaign celebrated this endorsement by retweeting Rogan's endorsement. Um, Some have called on Sanders' campaign to disavow the endorsement and to apologize for celebrating it. But others, like uh, Jacobin Magazine, have celebrated this as proof of Sanders' successful socialist strategy, a strategy that can cross the ideological divide. Um, Of course, at Jacobin, everything Bernie Sanders does is met uncritically with parades and ticker tape. Uh, I'm sure in a couple of weeks they're going to start referring, referring to him as the fearless leader or something. Um, but uh, we've been talking about the dangers of left economic populism on this podcast, and MHI has talked about this a lot. Um, it's dangerous to, um, and it, it, it's dangerous because it fails to take seriously the dangers of pandering to reactionary elements of uh, society. And this whole issue seems to be real, to me, to be a real vindication of what we've been warning about for several years now, that there's a real danger of a red-brown alliance developing um, out of this left economic populism. Indeed, Jackman's take on Joe Rogan's endorsement was not dissimilar from Richard Spencer, the famous white nationalist who tweeted about the same issue. He, He tweeted today or a couple days ago, quote, Joe Rogan is 
the center of American politics and exactly the type of person a working class political movement should seek to attract. I, I saw an article in Forbes magazine and they quoted Bhaskar Sankara, who's like the, the head of Jacobin. I don't know his official uh, title. And he called Rogan, quote, the best endorsement Bernie Sanders could hope for. His fans are a group of people we can't afford to cede to Trump. You know, the fact that, that, that Rogan endorses Sanders is not the issue. Even, even if Sanders had said nothing instead of outright disavowed the endorsement, that, that would have been different than, than what they did, which was to celebrate it. And now you have, you know, all the people around him, around Sanders, trying to provide arguments for this. And that even makes it worse because the arguments are all, you know, let's win over these people. But you're winning them over without challenging what's so abhorrent about their ideology and, you know, their hatred. And, and, and that's the other thing that really bothered me about that piece in, in Jacobin is it made this issue of trans people into a, a, a difference in policy views. You know, th this is not a difference in policy views. This is hatred of people because of who they are. OK, th th you know, you can have disagreements with people about policy. I want more entitlement programs. I want less entitlement programs. I want this kind of foreign policy. I want that kind of foreign policy. Those are policy views. Hatred of people because they're trans or they're black or they're whatever. You're talking about something different. And the fact that they don't see it or refuse to see it is extremely troubling. I thought there was a piece uh, back in August of last year in Jacobin by Luke Savage that came out right after Sanders went on the Joe Rogan show. And the sort of blurb at the top of the piece, I think, encapsulates a lot of the problem. He, he It says, Bernie Sanders' viral appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast showcased his unique ability to communicate left-wing values across the ideological divide. And just this framing of what is a left-wing value, I thought, is really illustrative of the problem problem here. They're saying that confronting racism, transphobia, homophobia, those sort of things are not left-wing values. Those are like sort of the, these distracting social issues that distract us from the real left-wing values, which are, you know, redistributionist uh, social democratic politics, and that the ability to, to attract people with reactionary views to your party by promising more social democracy, that's the real left-wing strategy, and that we can just ignore all these the all the all the racism and reaction because it's it's sort of a distraction from the real issues that leftists should be dealing with. I mean that's really what is being argued, although it's not completely explicit. It's close to explicit. My, yeah, my major my my major takeaway uh, initially was 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 yours. It's like this is this just shows the moral bankruptcy of any conception of socialism in which it consists exclusively or predominantly of um, entitlement programs uh, rather than like Marx's conception where the free development of each, each person, the free development of each person is the condition for the free development of all. That That's what, what Marx fought his whole life for. That just, it doesn't get reflected in what these people call socialism. It's a very economistic, narrow, programmatic kind of thing and it's just very hard to relate to those kinds of people of course they, they don't they don't really want to relate to us they want to relate to uh, the joe rogan audience well on that note we're going to transition to our discussion of the critique of the gotha program and marx's vision of socialism so i have a friend and he has a t-shirt that says labor is the source of all value 
and every time I see his t-shirt, I think of the opening paragraphs to Marx's critique of the Gotha program, where Marx has a field day beating up on these Lasallians for this very sloppy theoretical construction, when they say, they start off with this line, labor is the source of all wealth and culture. Yeah, it's not TC. TC? It's not TC. It's not theoretically correct. Ah, I see. Uh, so every time I see the T-shirt, I think, you know, am I should, I should I be correcting him on this theoretical detail, or is this completely unimportant? Well, it's look, look, it's you know, it's it's one thing, you know, as a slogan on a T-shirt. It's another thing in a political program. Well, that's what I wanted to get at first here. I think that if someone's reading the Gotha critique for the first time, or maybe even t- the tenth time, they're likely struck uh, at the degree of Marx's irritation with the program. And the the detail of his critique, which extends to very minute sort of theoretical details and and details of word choices and paragraphs. And one is maybe left wondering, is this just sort of the curmudgeon-y, carbuncle-y, uh, copy editor side of Marx, or are there more important principles at stake here? Well, my view on the matter is he's at that point leading up to something. Okay, and what he's leading up to is that all of these things which just seem to be plain sloppiness and lack of real internalization of uh, theory, particularly the theory that he's already laid out in Capital, you know, the first edition which was published in 1867 and this program that he's uh, writing a critique of is eight years later – so it looks like it just might be accidental sloppiness, not paying attention to theory. But I think Marx is leading up to the point that these problems in the text are not accidental. And what they are are a capitulation of the so-called Marxist par- party uh, that's entering into this unification. Uh, they're actually capitulating to the Lasallians, the, the other group with which they are uh, followers of Ferdinand Lasalle. Okay, so the so-called Marxists or Eisenachers are, are merging with the Lasallians and they're in fact capitulating to them on a theoretical basis. It's not just theoretical sloppiness, it's, it's theoretical capitulation that I think uh, is not just irritating him. I mean, he, he's, he's opposing the program, he's opposing the unification, and he's just leading into it by saying even the most simple and seemingly innocuous things are just riddled with this conciliationist capitulation all the way through. Yeah, and these were hard-won theoretical achievements that Marx had worked on for decades and that Marx and Engels had labored to win people over to these positions and this level of understanding. And now they saw these theoretical achievements uh, being compromised with this regressive um, uh, uh, backsliding into Lasallianism. Yeah, I mean, I, I would not uh, say that it, it, labor is not the source of all wealth is a you know, tremendous theoretical insight that was very hard won. I mean, by itself, it's it's not that huge of a point. But taken in the context of this program, which eventually is calling for fair distribution of the proceeds of labor and equal right and all of this stuff, and the achievement of all of this without saying you need a new society before you get it, taken in context, yeah, uh, a tremendous amount of Marx's work in particular uh, is implicated in this. You know, it's in effect being just discarded by the program. 
Yeah, well, they were hard won, not just in terms of the achievement of a certain level of theory, but also the politics of winning people over to positions. Oh, yeah. I mean, for, for I mean, this is, I think, really the importance of the, the critique of the Gotham program is finally in this document. After decades, everything kind of comes together for Marx. You got the the theory, um, you've got the political practice, and you've got organization specifically. All of them are together, and he's forging in opposition to the program and the the merger, the unification. He's forging a whole different basis and saying, "I'm opposing this," and all of these things need to be, you know, held tightly together. The theory, the political practice this the organization and you can't just like jettison throw overboard the theory you know opportunistically for the sake of uh, a political merger you know one step of real movement is more important he says than a dozen programs okay and and what he's referring to there is 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 theoretical development you know the real movement is the theoretical development of the working class movement and the proletarian organizations and so forth you know, Ryadunia of Skaya writes that a lot of the post-Marx Marxists extolled LaSalle and considered him this organizational genius that was able to uh, really build the first uh, giant German workers' party. And they put a lot of emphasis into this idea of party building for its own sake, whereas uh, Marx is opposing this merger in his critique of the Gotha program uh, because he doesn't see it worthwhile to grow the size of the party if it means theoretical retrogression. Right. Uh, He's certainly saying that, and they certainly, in the the German social democracy, not only extolled LaSalle and on organizational matters raised him you know, to a higher level than Marx. I mean, there, there was actually like the idea that like, okay, Marx was the, the theory guy and the organization guy was LaSalle and the founder of our party is, is, is Ferdinand LaSalle. Because in fact, that was the case that the, the in, in, at Gotha, the uh, Eisenach group merged into something that was larger, which was the LaSallean party. So like when Rosa Luxemburg would speak at a public meeting of, of, of the party, you'd have like this poster on one end of the platform of Marx, you know, that was your theory end. And on the other end of the platform, you'd have the poster of LaSalle. He was the founder of the party. So they, they tried to like have it both ways, right? And, and since then, of course, everybody's tried to have it both ways. You know, you can you can have these Marxist beliefs, but you know, the bottom line is you have to merge into this party that uh, is not based on, in any you know strong sense, not not based on on these theoretical gains. Yeah, there's often a real emphasis on size, on recruiting cadre and building numbers, rather than on uh, the, the development of theoretical ideas. But this also just extends outside of the left to bourgeois political parties in general, that building the mass base is the primary concern, and ideas are quite secondary. And in fact, the internal coherence of ideas within the party is not 
important. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to understand with regard to the, the, the Gotha program, Marxist critique, and so forth, is modern political parties did not exist in, in Marx's day. Really, this merged party was kind of like the first modern party that ever existed. Workers did not have the, the right to vote, you know, pretty much, pretty much anywhere. And because of that, you did not have political parties that were representing constituencies and trying to bring people in, you know, as their constituency and so forth. So that idea of a representative political party was not at all part of Marx's conception. And, and it may not have been, I don't think it was even really part of the conception of uh, the German social democracy, which basically begins at Gotha. It's not just numbers that, you know, the desire to attract people and gain numbers, that's the, the, the problem here. That's part of it. But, but the other other part is this idea of us trying to win over constituencies and appeal to them where they're at, so to speak, or whatever basis in order to gain those numbers. What a party was for Marx and what a party meant in, in the environment in which he was living was just completely different from what we now understand a political party to be. A political party is now what we would call more like a political current or a political tendency, something more like that. So when Marx is saying, you know, he, he does this and that in the interest of the party, it's an immediate theoretical conception, you know, or has immediate the theoretical implications because there, there, there wasn't this idea like, oh, you do the party stuff and then you do the theory stuff on the side. The party, you know, and the organization are all together in this idea of a political current or a political tendency because the tendency is defined by what it stands for. Whereas we know, we, we know with a big tent party, it's not defined by what it stands for. So pivoting a little bit here, one of the things that is interesting about the Gothic critique is Marx has some very insightful things to say about the notion of equality and fairness and what it means to fight for equality and fairness within the confines of a bourgeois society and what it means for uh, movements to demand equality and fairness within a bourgeois society. The lines from the program that he takes issue with say, quote, the emancipation of labor demands the promotion of the instruments of labor to the common property of society and the cooperative regulation of the total labor with a fair distribution of the proceeds of labor. And earlier it begins in its first point by saying that the proceeds of labor belong undiminished with equal right to all members of society. Okay, so this fair distribution is equal right to all members of society. Right. So what is wrong with this? Well, he, he, first of all, just leans in really heavily on this word fair. And basically, he's saying fair relative to what? And he asks, isn't the present day distribution of uh, the proceeds of labor, in other words, income distribution, isn't the present day under capitalist distribution fair in capitalism's terms, right? And so what it, it, the real point is, what is the nature of the society that you people are talking about in this program, okay? And what is, what is fair in that kind of society? And that is, I think, the real um, 
principle that he's trying to get force them to come to grips with in this critique is one of the fundamental principles of his historical materialism, which is that these different things, the, the nature of the state and the economy and distribution and, and all of this stuff, these are not just like separate pieces that, that you can mix and match. They all go along together. They're, they're, they're a whole. And within that whole, there's a certain structure. And the relations and the forces of production are, are the, the foundation of all of this. And corresponding to every different configuration of relations and forces of production, corresponding to these different foundations, you get a different politics, you get a different uh, set of relations of income distribution and so forth. Uh, you get different ideologies, you have different systems of law, different ideas of fairness, okay? And they all go along together. So that's what's called correspond. He often uses the term correspond. So he will say like the, the relations of income distribution follow from, arise on the basis of, and correspond to the mode of production, the, the forces and, and relations of production. Uh, the, the point is you can't have relations of production that are at loggerheads with the actual material mode it, in which you produce, with the, the kind of technology you have uh, and the relations at work and the relations between owners and non-owners. All of it has to fit together. And so the, the critique here of this fair distribution stuff is that they're trying to impose some sort of socialist conception of what's fair, some socialist conception of what's proper and right and lawful on a society that they've said nothing about changing its mode of production, its forces and, and relations of production. And so it's in this context that Marx issues the very famous line, right, the, the realm of rights and law, right can never be higher than the economic stage of society or the economic structure of society and the cultural development that is determined by that. Okay, so he's saying, stop talking about distribution like you, you can substantially change distribution, create equality and all of this on the basis of capitalist relations of production capitalist mode of production that you said nothing about. It's not going to be possible. You want fair distribution? You want equal distribution? You want to talk about that? Then you have to talk about really profound changes in the character of the society and then a long process of development within that new society until you could get something like, you know, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. And this all seems very relevant still today because so much of the left today is still stuck in this notion of fighting for equality and fairness and freedom and such, all within the confines of capitalist social relations. So even people who call themselves socialists today are still um, primarily concerned with redistributionist politics and not about something that would actually challenge the mode of production in society. Right. I mean, in, in general, I mean, to give the other side their due, they basically do not accept this principle of historical materialism that I, I tried to sketch out a moment ago. They think, you know, the pieces are basically separable and you can mix and match and, 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 and tinker with things. You know, I've, I've discussed this with lots of people 
in lots of places for a long time. I just don't think that they are very successful in defending the viability of their proposals in light of the other aspects of capitalist society that continue to exist. I mean, for instance, take something like universal basic income. Right. I mean, if you gave people income that were that that was sufficient to live, I mean, not a really high standard of living, but 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 something that that's you know not keeping them on the edge all the time. If you were to pro- provide that universally with no strings attached within a capitalist society, where you know people are having to do what the bosses tell them, you know, all all the labor is is alienated. A lot of it is unsafe. Most of it is you know at best boring. Etc. Etc. Okay, you give people income that allows them to avoid this; they are going to avoid it. And then when they avoid it, you know, production comes to a standstill, and this income that the government's going to provide, well, it's not there anymore because there's no, <laughs> there's, there's, I don't know, if there's any production, it's it's at a much lower level, and so the tax revenues are 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 are, are much lower. So I mean, the whole thing really becomes unworkable. I mean, I know they've got their little experiments where you give people little bit of money and they keep working but it's a it's a question of a critical mass of money enough to make people a- able to live with without working that's the issue here you know there there have been no experiments where you you know you, you gave a family of four forty thousand dollars you know in a, in a community of a few hundred thousand people or more for a sustained period of time those kinds of experiments um, if they did I, I think I know what we would see and it would it wouldn't be people would just keep working under you know these conditions of, of alienated labor and and, and and being bossed around we, we we have a lot of evidence that that's not the case I mean for instance when I think it was the auto industry they they, they first gave uh, uh, workers the possibility of early retirement, I think at 60 instead of age 65, they didn't expect many people to take it. And, you know, people took it by the droves. They, they, you know, they were like, get me out of this, you know, hellhole. Marx moves from this critique of fair distribution to a discussion of what would actually be required to change the mode of production from a capitalist to a communist mode of production. Of course, uh, listeners are probably familiar with the phrase, from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs, which appears in Marx's critique of the Gotha program. Uh, They might not be clear as to why this is a defining feature of what, what Marx calls the higher phase of communism. They also might not be clear as to how the so-called lower phase of communism still constitutes a break with the capitalist mode of production. In the lower phase, society is not yet ready to organize production and distribution along the ideals of from each according to his ability to each according to uh, their needs. Um, Yet this lower phase still constitutes a break with capitalism. I thought it might just be helpful to start by just reading a few sentences from his description of the lower phase of communism. He says, Within the cooperative society based on the common ownership of the means of production, the producers do not exchange their products. Just as little does the labor employed on the products appear here as the value of these products, as a material quality possessed by them, since now, in contrast to capitalist society, individual labor no longer exists in an indirect fashion, but directly as a component part of the total labor. Here he's making it very clear that he sees 
this notion of indirect labor, which is the hallmark of capitalist society, um, and direct labor, which is the opposite, and which is a hallmark of pre-capitalist societies and of uh, a communist society, that these two terms, indirectly social and directly social labor, are really at the heart of, of this question of how to break with capitalism. Right. And this is related to the other things, the other features, so to speak, of the communist society that he's mentioning here. So he says uh, the labor is expended on the products no longer appears as the value of the products because labor has become directly rather than indirectly social and you don't have exchange of products uh, anymore. Uh, and again, that's a consequence of labor having become directly social. And then, of course, you know, you've got the common ownership of, of the means of production, the main things that we use to produce tools, machines, so forth. They're they're all they're all they're all all these things are, are connected. So I'm sure that you are more prepared than I am to give a succinct definition of indirectly or directly social labor. Can you do that? Right, indirectly social is probably the easier to understand. First of all, let's say in modern you know capitalist societies, you know labor is social labor. You're not just producing for yourself; you're producing for others in society. And you know when you work. Uh, you're working with uh, on materials, you know, raw material supplies that they've created and, and so forth and so on. We're all interconnected. So the labor is social labor, but it's not directly social in the sense that one's performance of labor doesn't automatically count as social labor, first of all. If you are producing something and the demand for that product suddenly goes away, your labor does not count as social labor. Because then that's because the things you're making are not being used by society. Yeah, yeah, they're no longer wanted, you know. So you, you, you produce typewriters and there's no longer demand for typewriters. You've, you've worked, but that's not social labor. It doesn't count as social labor. Okay, for instance... Um, but beyond just, you know, does it count at all or does it not count at all? There's the question of how much, you know, you, you, you do an hour of work. How much work does that count as? How much social labor is your one hour of private labor? How much does it count as? And so what we get are lots of uh, issues connected with, you know, somebody works, but they work you know, in the third world uh, with backward technology, and they do an hour of work, but it doesn't yield that much product. So does their, uh, what is counting here? How much product they produce or how much work they're doing? And those are two different things. And in capitalist society, you know, how much work they do doesn't matter. Uh, how much product they produce matters. It's not the only thing that matters, but it, but it matters rather than the amount of work uh, that they do. And, you know, you've got uh, some people are uh, stronger, more capable for a variety of reasons. Uh, they've got special skills that others don't have. You know, does their hour of labor count as one hour of social labor or as more than one hour of social labor? Well, we know the answer in capital society. So through a variety of relations, the labor that people do it's not immediately social. A variety of, of, of things come into play to determine how much social labor the one hour of an individual's labor counts as. 
Okay, so there's this indirect process by which the one hour of an individual's labor becomes one hour, more than one hour, less than one hour of, of social labor. Okay, so it's all it's all indirect. Assuming that it does count as some amount of social labor at all, that it's not, you know, labor used to produce typewriters, okay, but it's used to, you know, grow, you know, some crop uh, or whatever it might be, it counts as some amount of social labor, but one hour will not count generally as one hour of social labor. And there's this indirect process uh, dependent on a whole variety of factors, whole variety of economic factors in particular, that the determines how much social labor an individual labor uh, an individual's hour of labor counts as and this fact that indirectly social labor is a quintessential part of the social relations of capitalism is because labor in a capitalist society does, doesn't exist just to produce use values but its primary purpose is to produce things for exchange value so it has to produce value uh, economic value and profit. Right. And then people ask what value is. Um, but, well, I think we can give a sort of shorthand definition of value. Value is abstract wealth or wealth in the abstract. So we've got various material forms of wealth, you know, that are useful. Uh, you can eat food, you can live in housing, you can drive a car. Those are all materially different forms of, of wealth. Um, then there's just wealth as such in the abstract. You know, it gets measured by money, but it, it's independent of any particular form. And it could be associated with the whole gamut of the different material forms of wealth. And so if people are striving to be wealthier in the abstract, what that, you know, translates to in everyday parlance is they want more and more money, okay? And they want more and more money, not so they will have, you know, just a bigger car, you know, or more cars, bigger home, and, and so forth, uh, you know, because a lot of the time they, 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 they plunk this money into securities and amass the securities and accumulate, accumulate. So it's, it's, it's an independent goal. It's not just you know for consumption purposes, so so that's that's some of what value is here, right? And that's probably important to bring up since money uh, is so such a quintessential feature of a capitalist society, and its ability to measure and store value, uh, as opposed to in a communist society or a society uh, based around directly social labor, where the need to measure and store value. Um, theoretically should not exist. And so whatever is replacing money is not really performing money functions. Right. And, and you were talking about, or we were talking about uh, directly and indirectly social labor. And one key property of money is very closely connected, especially in Marx's mind, one key property of money is very connected to the indirect sociality of labor. I mean, if you imagine, imagine, let's say, a capitalist society without money, okay, it becomes unimaginable because if you are going to have a society in which the individual's labor one hour does not count as an hour of social labor, you need something that does signify an hour of social labor, okay? And that is what money does. You know, one one dollar is equal to X amount of social labor. Ten times that amount is equal to 10x social labor. Okay, so you're not counting labors. You're counting, in effect, you're counting money, whatever you know, material forms that that money or electronic forms that that money has.
so let's get to this notion of directly social labor. You said you thought that was harder to explain, because I think of it as being in some ways easier to explain in some examples. I mean, if I, if we, if we take like, I feel like you often hear people use the example of labor within a family unit that is, you know, producing use values for each other, but not, um, there's not, there's products not being exchanged and all of your labor is immediately the social labor of the family unit, say in like a, I don't know, subsistence farm or something. Um, it's immediately social labor because it's being used and, uh, your labor is ne never being measured against some abstract standard of efficient labor. That's, that's, that would be directly social labor. Yes. And I think now, now that we've talked about indirectly social labor, now it becomes ah, right. it's really easy to easy talk to say, about yeah. directly social labor as its negation. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, yeah, I agree with everything that you've said about, you know, the, the, the labor within a family or a peasant household or all of those are, are legitimate examples of directly social labor. But they don't relate to this quantitative issue, how much labor one's, you know, individual labor counts as socially, right? I mean, you know, you think of peasants, uh, they, within their household, I don't think they, they kept books, you know, about how much time this one spent on this and how much time this one spent on that. But in, you know, a whole big society uh, that we're talking about here, you do have to keep the books, you do have to have uh, accounting, you do have have to have some economic coordination. Um, so, the, so the quantitative issue becomes very important. And so what is the quantitative dimension of directly social labor in a big society like that? Well, it becomes very simple to explain now. One hour of individual labor directly counts socially without any intervening process. It directly counts socially. One hour of individual labor counts as one hour of social labor. So assume, assume, assuming, you know, all the little things like they're working with the same intensity and so forth. Okay. Yeah. So then I think what people have to work through to understand is what exactly it means to say that an hour of one's labor counts as an hour of social labor. Here, Marx <clears throat> explains it like this. He says, he receives a certificate from society that he has furnished such and such an amount of labor. And with this certificate, he draws from the social stock of means of consumption as much as costs the same amount of labor. Right. So these are the new relations of distribution that correspond to, using that um, notion from the historical uh, materialist conception of history, okay, these are the new relations of distribution. You perform one hour of labor, you get, you're entitled to the products of one hour of labor. These new relations of distribution correspond to this new mode of production in which labor is directly social, there's no value, there's no money, there's no exchange of products. You see, in this Example, there's no exchange of products. You, you have a certificate, you're entitled, you get, okay? and, and there's cooperative, uh, there's common ownership of the means of production. So in terms of dist the, the distributional effects of what it means to count as an hour of labor, this is it. Uh, are there other aspects of what it might mean to count as an hour of labor? I mean, I think so, but we probably don't need to go into that. So it's clear to me that Marx is saying that both this lower phase of communism and the higher phase of communism are both phases, types of communism. They both uh, have directly social labor, and they've negated the capitalist mode of production and replaced it with something else. 
So what exactly then is the difference between the higher and lower phase of communism? Well, what, what, what he's getting at here, so I don't want to try to even speak in general what are the differences, but what he's saying is, okay, they have the same relations of production. As you said, labor is directly social. There's no production of value. There's no value. There's no money. Um, there's no exchange of products. Means of production are held in common. Okay, So that's common to both the lower and higher phases of communist society. But what he's saying will differ in these two phases of the communist society is the relations of distribution, okay? So this idea of you work an hour, you're entitled to an hour of products, that is what is corresponding to the lower phase of communist society. That's what's feasible, and only that much is feasible in a communist society when it's just starting out. To get to, you know, the the, the, the dreamed of stage where, wait, from each according to their ability to each according to their needs, okay? To get to that, we need more than just a communist society. We need more than just labor being directly social, no value, no money, no exchange of products, common ownership of means of production. Okay. And the things that we need on top of that to eventually, eventually, eventually maybe arrive at this stage where you can have from each according to their ability to each according to their needs, you need a massive, massive increase in productivity, uh, in social wealth, just absolute abundance, absolute plenty. And you need a, a tremendous transformation of the nature of work so that work is no longer something that people look at as something I have to do, um, but it's something they want to do and enjoy and, and, and get satisfaction from. So that when when they're working, they're not saying, well, you know, how much am I getting in return? Okay, you, you really need a tremendous amount of wealth and you need a tremendous transformation of uh, the way in which work is done and the technology in order to make work not something that you do in order to get some reward for in return, but he says instead of just a means to life, it becomes life's prime want. The main thing that you want to do, you get up, you go, oh, cool, I can go to work. That's a long way off. <laughs> in just a moment, we will return to our discussion about Marx's critique of the Gotha program. But first, a few words from Andrew Clard of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which hosts our podcast. Hello, this is Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. 
We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. So we've talked about how both the lower and higher phase of communism, as described by Marx here, have directly social labor and are therefore not capitalist societies. Um, But there are other interpretations of this text that one will run into where people consider the lower phase of communism to be um, some sort of transitional society, transitional mode of production, which which is not fully capitalist or not fully communist. And I think the evidence, it seems, for that interpretation comes from these few sentences where Marx is talking about bourgeois right still being something that applies in the lower phase of communism. Yeah, he's not. You, you don't believe he's saying that, but that's how they interpret. That's how people it, right? interpret. This sort of the textual right. evidence that people use to say that the lower phase is really like a transitional society and not a new society. You've written a decent amount about this, so maybe you should sort of explain what's going wrong with that. And I, I think one thing that leads people off in this direction is that just like the, the people who, you know, slap together this Gotha program that Marx is opposing and the merger that is, you know, based on these ideas that he's opposing of the two parties, just like them who are focused on the relations of distribution, who gets what, that's what these people focus on. So w- when they say, ah, this is a different society, the lower phase and the higher phase, because they've got different relations of distribution, that's the error right there. Okay. Right. This is what we talked about earlier, that relations of uh, distribution are secondary to relations of production. And the lower and higher phases of communist society that Marx is talking about is belonging to one and the same society. They have the same relations of production, directly social labor, no value, etc., etc. There is a difference in terms of their relations of distribution, however. Why? Because to move to relations of distribution in which what you get is totally decoupled, independent of what you contribute, which is what we mean when we say from each according to their ability to each according to their needs, what does that mean? It means you give independent of what you get and you get independent of what you give. Okay. To get to that stage, we need more than communist relations of production, directly social labor, no value, no exchange of products, common ownership. Those things alone are not sufficient to usher in this absolute break between what you give and what you get. What you need in addition is what I was saying before. You need tremendous abundance, you know, untold wealth, and you need an absolute 
absolute transformation of how work is done. So it becomes not something you have to do to get rewards, but something that you do because, you know, hell, this is like, cool, this is, I'm doing work here, you know. So, so it's just it's just that certain things are needed in addition to communist relations of production to reach that form of distribution. That, that, that's all that's really going on as far as I can see. So the other place in the text where people sometimes get this idea that Marx is considering the lower phase of communism to be some sort of transitional mode of production is this place later in the text in which he says, between capitalist and communist society lies the period of the revolutionary transformation of the one into the other. There corresponds to this also a political transition period in which the state can be nothing but the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. So people take that paragraph to mean that, that the lower phase is this transition period. What's wrong with this interpretation? And they also think that the lower phase or something somehow is between capitalist and communist society. So there's like a double or triple or quadruple set of mistakes going on here. I mean, the, the, the one danger of that is to think of communist society in terms of distribution from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. That's not what, what Marx is talking about. Very clearly, it seems to me here, uh, on the basis of, of the, the other parts of the text. I mean, that's that's one issue. Uh, the confusion of the, the politics and the, the, the nature of the society is another problem. There's all kinds of problems. Problems here, But the key to remember is that the lower phase and the higher phase of communism are phases of one society. They have the same relations of production. And that, that's how Marx always defines a socioeconomic formation or society on the basis of its mode of production, which includes the relations of production. So we're talking, again, directly social labor, no value, uh, no exchange of products, common ownership. Both the lower and higher phases are communist society, okay? And so he's saying between capitalism and that, between capitalist and communist society lies not some intermediate society, not some, you know, mixed economy or whatever. In between that, you just have the transformation of the one into the other. No, 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 no middle kind of society, okay? You had capitalism, now you got communism. One gets transformed into the other. That's the social transformation. It's a revolutionary transformation. It's not gradual. It, may, it might take time, but it's not like piece by piece by piece. It's not gradual in that sense. Okay, so you, you, you can't like, it, it's not, it's not, in, there's no intermediate form of society between the two. Okay, but he says then in the next sentence, no longer talking about the revolutionary transformation of the mode of production. He now talks about the politics. He says corresponding to this is a political transition period in which the state could be nothing but the, revo the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. So corresponding to the social economic transformation, he's saying there corresponds a political transition period. So in this period where you're moving between capitalism and communism. In, so in this period where society is being transformed into what we've gotten now, from that into the lower phase of communism, before we have the lower phase of communism, once we're starting to break with capitalist society, there's a political transition period in which there is still a state. And what is the state in these circumstances when we're moving society, transforming it into this lower phase of communism, but we haven't gotten there? We have a state that is 
the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. And I mean, that's a, that's a phrase that is just fraught with, you know, misunderstandings and, and stuff because of the word dictatorship. But it, it doesn't mean, you know, Trump, Putin, you know, Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler and, and that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, and basically because the term dictatorship had a different connotation and meaning in Marx's day. And if I could you know, summarize, I would probably say that. Uh, Marx is talking about not the rule of an individual over a society, but of one uh, part of society, one class over another. In a capitalist society, we have a dictatorship with a capitalist class where they control, you know, sort of have the, the greatest political influence and control over society. And in the dictatorship of the proletariat, it, the, this would be inverted, and the proletariat, the working class, would have control over society. Just in case it's not clear to people, we should go over why it's important to do away with this notion of a transitional society, of what the problems are with this idea. Well, first of all, I think that, you know, what people call the logic of capital, I think there is a logic of capital, a logic of capitalist society. It, you know, works a certain way. It has a certain structure. And it's totalizing, okay? Capitalism expands itself in more and more into every realm of life. You know, so for instance, information is now a commodity, you know, which it wasn't not all that long ago. I mean, just more and more every aspect of life. So how can this like totalizing monster be sitting there in some mixed society, some intermediate society alongside something that is absolutely antithetical to it? What kind of a society would you have? Or would you have, you know, complete chaos and something that doesn't work? I, I think that you'd have the latter. You, you have to have capitalism or, or, or nothing, really, um, or, or a different society, right? But beyond that, to, to think of a transitional society in terms of Marx's body of thought, it just doesn't make sense. Because as I keep coming back to this idea of uh, his materialist conception of history, in which the foundation of the whole shebang is the, the, the mode of production, the relations of production, how people work, the forces of production, what they're working with. Okay. And on top of that, there arises, it meshes with, it corresponds to, you've got the distribution of income, of, of wealth, you've got the, uh, the, the form of, of, of political association, state or whatever, you've got the ideology, you've got the laws, all of it, it all is of a piece. Okay. Now, take that with the idea of, put the, try to put that together with the idea of uh, a transitional society. Um, what is its mode of production, okay. it, right? It would have to be a transitional mode of production if it's not going to be either just this unworkable mix of capitalist relations and, and, and communist relations. And it's just not feasible that the, cap the capitalist totality would not just like crush the, 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 the attempts to, to, to move this towards communism. It's just not, not, not possible. You, you just have chaos or, or, or worse. So you can think of various transitions, like you can think of a transition like Marx was talking about. You can think of a transition from the, the state into the communist non-state. The transition is the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. You move from one, you transition more or less gradually, quickly, whatever, you transition from one to the other. 
Okay, but given that the relations of production and the forces, the mode, and everything that goes along with that in society is of a piece, there, there's no idea of, 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 a, of, a, of a transition there because it's the transformation of society that drives the transition. Okay, the transformation of the actual relations of production are driving the political transition. The political transition is corresponding to that transformation of society, okay? But there's no, how do you speak of like uh, the, the, the transformation of society driving a transition of society? I mean, it, it doesn't even, it doesn't even make any sense. So when you think in the terms that Marx is, is thinking of where the, the, the foundation of society is its mode of production, there's nothing that could impel a transition of the mode of production. Okay, it is the foundation, and its its transformation is what allows other things to be in transition. And that is all the time we have today on Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast. If you want to hear more episodes, leave a comment, ask a question, or contact us. You can do that at marxisthumanistinitiative.org. If you like the, if you like the podcast, please do share with friends and leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform.